Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Watch The Atheist Experience live Sundays at 4.30 p.m. Central. Visit tiny.cc slash YTAXP and call into the show at 512-991-9242 or connect to the show online at tiny.cc slash callaxp. It's time to get sexy on Secular Sexuality. Welcome to Secular Sexuality, the ACA show that should probably stop asking for predictions about what the Christian nationalists are going to do next. They seem to be taking it as a dare. Uh, tonight, I am going to be joined again by old friend of the show, Marie LePage. Marie, you and I have probably had the most like diverse conversations that I have had with any secular sexuality uh, guest because we have covered everything from like designer relationships and polyamory and sex positivity to uh, soulmates and uh, and kind of a number of things in between. Thank you so much for coming back tonight. Oh, I'm super glad to be here. Just so people know, I used to be Marie Delafont and now I go by Marie LePage, which is my real name because I'm out and unmasked. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Unmasked. Yeah. Well, so tonight uh, we are going to be peering through our neurotypical masks to see what sex looks like with ADHD. So if you are one of the 25% of people who is neurodivergent or have dated someone who is, give us a call. We're at 512-991-9242, or you can reach us at tiny.cc slash call sex because the show is coming right now. That sound means that we are starting this week the way we do every week. Marie, super excited to have you back. What's got you turned on this week? Well, I've got a lot of stuff I'm super interested in, but the the thing that I'm jamming on right now is a show on HBO called Infinity Train. Mm -hmm. And a uh, friend told me about it. They said it's basically like adventure time, but like for adults. And uh, <laughs> like, I won't give away the I think entire... a lot of adults watching this show just got a little insulted, but also I'm okay with that. But no, like, but I love, no. So I watch adventure time, right? Sure. But like, it's, it's, it's meant, it's more thematically about adult 
kind of things. But it's it's a really great, the storyline is a really great metaphor for what I'm understanding as like um, the process of kind of like healing and and like uh, throughout your life as you kind of get to know yourself and, and reflect on the influences that have been in your life and then how you've kind of metabolized them and how they've made you who you are and then gaining the consciousness to to make a different choice for your life. So it's about kind of gaining that autonomy through that like that um, cognitive healing and it's done in such a beautiful way and I'm so I'm super into infinity train. Yeah, I, I love when somebody uh, describes a show to me without telling me anything at all about the characters, the setting, the premise, uh, like just describing this is the story or the uh, the meaning, I guess, the thesis of this show. That gets me excited. Definitely sounds like it's something we're checking out. Yeah. What about you? Oh, man, I am very, very, very honestly just turned on by the idea that after two years of pandemic and of uh, hustle and hard work and everything else, I have a very, very, very rare opportunity to enjoy a weekend home alone coming up. So uh, what I am most turned on by is just going to be the opportunity to spend a day without having to uh, interact or be around another human being, which is a, a beautifully rare commodity these days. I see you, introvert here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and to be able to, uh, I suppose, just kind of let your hair down and be yourself and not have to Tell perform about it. for yeah. anybody, which is uh, is really what we wanted to, to get into tonight. Exactly. A, a little bit of, of table setting, I guess. Can you can you walk us through uh, terms like neurodivergent and, and like masking? Partially, I can, right? Um, so I'm new to understanding my neurodivergent diagnosis. And so I'm here speaking not as a professional, but as a um, a participant in this neurological <laughs> sure. sphere. Um, so anything that I say tonight should be uh, taken with a grain of salt. I'm certainly not expert on anything. But my understanding is that neurodivergence is um, a, a label for the kinds of brains that have different neurological and cognitive functionings. Um, and that includes the realms of ADHD, um, any anyone that uh, relates to being on the spectrum. I believe also Down's syndrome and a couple of other things, right? Um, yeah, a lot of people define it in in different ways. Uh, oftentimes, you will see it sort of end with sensory processing and dyslexia. Uh, other people like to expand that term to include folks who have experienced trauma or any uh, like physical change to their neurobiology. Hmm. It's a it's a kind of a new idea. I can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of masking, right? So again, very specifically this one, I can only speak um, on my own behalf. Um, but masking is for me, um, at least in the past, a subconscious, unconscious um, restriction of my behavior um, to commodify or to to fit in with what I have internalized that society expects out of me in any given situation. Um, yeah. And then and some people experiencing masking profoundly uh, throughout the day, throughout their life. And if uh, you're living that kind of a life for a long period of time, you can experience a lot of um, peripheral uh, comorbid, uh, like other issues like depression and anxiety and that sort of thing. So masking can be just life life stealing with, you know, 
so uh so that's what masking is it's it's not intentional my i never knew i was masking sure. i had yeah. no idea in fact i was coaching people who were neurodivergent and telling me that they were masking and i was like oh no that sucks like oh you could be you could be yourself around me and then i find out oh shit i've been masking for like 30 years yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> i i think about it like uh some boarding school where children are seen but not heard uh and sometimes it's that explicitly enforced idea but as often as not it just sort of turns into well this is the way everybody else behaves this is the way i behave mm. and kind of tamping yourself down until you really even forget that you're doing it or you're yeah. trying to like fit in and it just becomes automatic yeah. even though it can be terribly exhausting yeah yeah it feels like um when when i was masking it felt like i was mold and that like whatever came into my space i just kind of conformed myself to fit into it hmm. and now like that i'm becoming more aware of my neurodivergence and my uh, all of the things that were related to that i feel more like i'm a proactive self like i'm pushing myself outwards and letting people know where my boundaries are who i am what i need instead of conforming and so it obviously intersects a lot with like codependency can show up a lot in in folks who are struggling with this as well yeah well so i have been uh, kind of following along your story online and uh just getting excited about some of the things you've been discovering about yourself uh, what what can you share with us about what the the last year or so has been like for you oh my god y'all it's been it's been a journey um it's been a journey so um and i'll say that it probably started with shrooms but we'll, we'll just move on from there but sure. like so that <laughs> that that was a kind of eye-opening experience but i um I, to make a long story short, I found out that I had ADHD last October. And so since then, I've been kind of going through just a lot of mental reorganization, a lot of coming to terms with who I am, what my life has been, a lot of childhood memories coming up that I had repressed, a lot of um, pulling things together. Uh, my life started to make sense. A lot of my experiences started to make sense. The reason why I was struggling with so many things started to make sense. And once they made sense, uh, I started developing compassion and love for myself by by understanding my narrative, by understanding why I was who I was, which I wasn't. <laughs> That's because I wasn't <laughs> me because I didn't I didn't know how to be myself because I didn't understand myself. And um, so since October, I've been doing a lot of self self work, a lot of self exploration, a lot of digging into what I call like secular sexuality or excuse me, secular uh, spirituality. I tried mm -hmm. to honor the parts of me that were in in Christianity um, and and to engage in a self-knowledge that sometimes feels like what God used to feel like, um, but it's just me. And so I'm finding a lot of, I'm finding the ability to be happy um, that I apparently have that ability once I, you know, got to know myself better. Um, but yeah, a lot of um, my experiences with masking before all of this and still, because I'm still having to become aware of it and to confront it, um, a lot of it shows up in um, a word I'll use is like paranoia. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, you know, I'm just going to be meta right now. I'm looking at myself on a screen right now. I'm looking at myself talking, you know, and it, it brings up a, a kind of a paranoia being hyper aware of how I look, of how I sound. And my brain is experiencing a, the vast amount of people, the vast thousands of people <laughs> watching me and judging me and critiquing every little thing about me. And oddly enough, I imagine that they're critiquing the very things that I am self-conscious about, like my semi-discolored front tooth or like the fact that I have 
wrinkles or that my hair is a little bit messy. So I experience uh, masking in in feeling that at a, in a very loud level in my head and then not saying it. So me saying it right now is my intentional choice to unmask and say that it's it's difficult to be in my mind with a lot of this paranoia. I'm hypervigilant about how my body is positioned, how how I'm sitting, how I'm standing. Is this thing sticking out? Is that thing sticking out? And it depending on whether my brain says that I'm okay or not, I feel safe or not, you know, and the rules in my brain are completely arbitrary. They just kind of make it up. And I don't know how these things got in there. But I realized it one day when I was in Target, and I was standing in an aisle, and I felt I felt like, am I in someone's way? And I kept looking all around and no one was there. But then I kept on seeing out of the corner of my eye, someone coming down. So I was so hyper vigilant about getting out of somebody's way and there was nobody there. And it's it's a small example, but it's a big example of uh, what my life has been like in general, like always, like I said, being that mold, getting out of everyone else's way, accommodating everyone else and such to such an extreme extent that I'm in a constant state of hyper vigilance whether it's externally or whether it's internally, hypervigilant with my thoughts, hypervigilant with um, how I talk to myself, hypervigilant about all these things. And so that's a lot of uh, what my masking has felt like. And it shows up in relationships mm -hmm. um, in, in particular with my uh, primary partner. I don't know if I like that word, but the partner, the domestic partner that I have, the one sure. I'm most attached to, the most enmeshed with, I experience it the most, most masking there, which is um, surprising to me. Yeah, no, it, it shows up in the most pervasive ways. Uh, and like in particular, the places where our default mode network is kicking in, where we're maybe like less uh, intentional or active about what we're doing. Uh, I, I often think about it uh, like the experience of trying to give up smoking or, or something along those lines. You think to yourself, oh, I want a cigarette. Nope, I shouldn't have a cigarette. Oh, I'm a little bit annoyed by that. Oh, wait, what was that guy saying? I'm supposed to be paying attention here. Mm -hmm. And that like constant amount of mental work that is uh, put into, well, don't uh, stim if you, uh, if you are somebody on the autism spectrum who stims or yeah. uh, some of these other ideas ideas around, you know, don't interrupt people. Like, how do I force myself to be the type of person I'm, quote, supposed to be yeah. in our civilized society when my brain is a little bit different from uh, from what's supposedly civilized? Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the interruption part, because that's something I'm having a hard time with, because I'm I'm dating someone who's neurodivergent as well. And um, they they like to tell stories. And my mm. some of my I don't know, I don't want to label things. It's just I have a hard time interrupting people. And so it turns out then that I don't interrupt him. And then he keeps telling his story. And by the time he's finished telling his story, my poor mind is exhausted <laughs> from trying to listen to the story, retain the story, have something interesting to say, try not to forget it, try not to forget it, try not to forget it, try not to forget it. And like, so like it's, it's, it's um, a whole exercise. It's exhausting. And so I've, I've been I've noticed that it's just incredibly difficult for me to interrupt him and be like, hey, dude, I'm like losing track of your story. Can we like hold on a second or like anything, just saying anything like, hey, I'm not here anymore. I'm not paying attention anymore. <laughs> to just or, acknowledge what's going on to be present and sincere yeah. in that sense. I mean, yeah, it's really like, challenging because people feel insulted oftentimes, even though we're just looking to be sincere and even to increase 
the the level of connection by letting them know what our experience is. Exactly. I don't want to infantilize him and patronize him by, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, okay. Good story. Good story. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, it doesn't feel good in me and that's not good for him, but it's hard. Yeah, it's just hard. As a specific example, it's hard to interrupt um, and, and be like, you know, I have something to say now too. Like, <laughs> sure. And especially if you have ADHD and you struggle with your working memory and you, you know, you're listening to a story that's this long and you keep on having a thought right there, right there, right mm -hmm. there that you'd like it's hard to, to hold share. on to them. Yeah. And you can't hold on to them. And every time a thought escapes my, my head that I want to share, I die a little inside because I have <laughs> so many years of experience of um, a faulty or a, a different functioning working memory mm -hmm. that I've had to compensate for that I've always felt uh, terrible and embarrassed about and apologetic for. There's a potential that in this next hour, I'm going to be in the middle of a sentence and then we'll have to say, I don't know what we're talking about anymore. I don't know what I was talking about. Can you remind me? And that's fucking embarrassing, mm. but it's, it's, it's a reality for me and I'm not going to mask it anymore. I'm going to advocate for my brain and I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for what it does and I'm not going to be embarrassed of it anymore. And so speaking up and saying like, oh, I just forgot what I was saying. Can you remind me or, or learning? Like, for example, like sometimes I forget what I'm saying. And if I give myself 20 seconds of compassion and I just kind of wait, my brain brings it back up. Whereas in the past, I would just be like, if the brain, if my brain forgot what I was saying, it would get really aggressive and like hostile. Like, how could you forget what you're saying? And that's again? the and social like, pressure. And that's the, uh, yeah. the challenge of being neurodiverse in a neurotypical world and why we mask, why we try and make it work by uh, looking like we're supposed to look and, and yeah. following that script. Yeah. Yeah. Like today I should have dressed up more. Right. But I'm wearing <laughs> and I, I don't need anyone you know, to tell me that I look fine or anything. It's it's a thing inside of me, right? That says, oh, I'm supposed to be looking this way. Christy has a suit jacket on. Why do you have a shirt that looks like a prisoner striped shirt from like the 50s? Like, and you haven't even showered today. What are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, so it's like, it's stuff like that, like that you you feel self-conscious about, but I'm enough. I'm mm. okay. Like I, I, my brain is enough as it is. And, and so I think that's one of the, the, the great things about finding, about leaning into a lot of the people I talk to about neurodivergence in my coaching work are afraid to get diagnosed because they don't want to be labeled sure. and they don't want society to label them. And that's legitimate and that's fair. And that is a real problem. That is a real bias issue. And I have experienced that the benefits of embracing, leaning into learning about these labels, even if you don't want to take the label on for yourself, at least explore the realm of what that means for people can be so empowering and you can get to know yourself better and, and lead a life that is better suited to, to your brain. And my life has changed incredibly since October, uh, just incredibly. And I, I, I really just thought that my biggest life accomplishment would be dying at 80 saying, you know, I tried really, really hard. Nobody can say I didn't try hard. That was my big goal. And now I already achieved it. Like I'm, I, I won't say I'm happy. I just, I, I feel like I found what I was looking for, like, mm. which was me. Yeah. And I, I think it's really important to acknowledge diagnosis here, because when we talk about really any form of neurodivergence, uh, our diagnostic criteria are, are really messy. We're just frankly bad 
at, at diagnosing it as a medical establishment. That's without even talking about access to appropriate diagnostic tools, how expensive some of these tests can be and all of those challenges. Uh, and then all of the heavy, heavy biases that are included. Uh, in particular, women are very rarely di uh, diagnosed or offered a neurodivergent diagnosis. That is kind of a part of what we're talking about here because women tend to mask much more than men and are much more likely to have a late in life diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I also hear stories of people being told that they are too uh, too capable, too competent to be neurodivergent. That you know, well, somebody who's neurodivergent couldn't possibly be succeeding the way that you're succeeding. Yeah. So you must not have it, which is uh, is really problematic because while we don't have great numbers, if you take a, a glance around the internet, anywhere from about 10% to about 30, 35% of all people are neurodivergent. I, I know I've already kind of quoted some different numbers uh, today and in some of the promotional materials for this show. And that's because we don't have anything like good and locked in. And it's, uh, it's something I think that is important for other culture to be talking about more and to acknowledge more than we do. Mm -hmm. And something that came up for me as you were talking about that is like, what is the standard for success in someone who is neurodivergent? Because like I had um, some clients, a couple and one was on the spectrum. I think the other probably had ADHD and the ADHD one was speaking of the one on the spectrum saying like, oh, you know, he's getting really better at this. This thing doesn't seem to bother him as much anymore. He used to do this a lot and now he's getting a lot better. And I was like, or, or is he just masking? And he was right there next to her and he's like, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, I'm just masking. And I was like, yeah, so what is the standard for success? What is the standard for whatever we want to call recovery or uh, coping with or embracing our neurodivergence? Is it uh, coping to like, is it being as productive the way that we're supposed to be productive and doing the things that we're supposed to be doing? Or do we get to define for ourselves what success as a neurodivergent person means? And for me, it means something very different than what I've been told. And, and I think that's what's really important within the psychological community is to do patient first work because we are so incredibly unique and we know what we need. And, and it's important to center on what is distressing to us folks and what is not. And don't try to fix shit that's not broken and let us just be ourselves and determine for ourselves what do we want to work on, what do we want to change and why. Yeah. And also to extend uh, some understanding to one another uh, as we work to be less ableist and, and more accepting, that uh, we don't take it as a insult that our partner wasn't paying attention, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the context of like a tense argument or you know some really stressful situation, and instead recognize that their brain simply works differently than ours, not really even better or worse. Perhaps there are certain capacities that are different, uh, but we can make space for that yeah. rather than trying to cover it up and then judge ourselves and each other for being like mediocre at being neurotypical instead of being excellent at being ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that I've experienced so much more success in my relationships, in my job, in everything that I do uh, ever since I've embraced and leaned into 
my diagnosis and I, you know, and I speak up for it. In fact, I feel even more comfortable on the show. Being on the show is stressful, not specifically this show, but being live, you know, having people watch that kind of thing sure. is really stressful. But um, now I go into these things with a different attitude. I'm not here to try to perform and be somebody that's really well put together. My goal here is to have as much integrity as possible, like that the things that come out of my metaphorical heart come out of my mouth relatively unfiltered. And that is what I'm going to call success. Not, you know, did I look this way? Did I talk that way? Did I, did I build off of Christie's last statement in a, in a relevant enough way? You know, <laughs> sure. like, am I derailing it? Am I, you know, like all this shit, like I just, I just, now I just want to be myself. And I think that, um, I think that that's a beautiful thing. I think it's the change I want to see in the world. And I want it. I think by, by doing that, I mean, I'm trying to encourage other people to like, this is what this looks like to, for me anyway, uh, to, sure. to be vulnerable, to be real, to be honest, um, and, and not have it be like to feel bad about being honest about how your brain works. Like the little that I did explain about my brain, just, you know, five, 10 minutes ago, you'll, if you rewind and go back, you're not going to see shame. You're not going to see me apologizing for it. I don't do that anymore. It's just facts. This is just kind of how this works, you know, and, and just to embrace that and, and just to relax, relax into your brain, you know? Yeah. So, so broadly speaking, I'm hearing you say that uh, we should just own our, our differences and our identity and be transparent and sincere. Uh, but with that, are there any maybe particular strategies that you have tried or any particular thought processes that have helped you in reducing or, or in ending some of these masking habits? Yeah. And I was just looking over at my notes here. I'm not going to mask that I didn't take notes <laughs> and didn't prepare this question ahead of time. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things that I've been doing since October that help um, that have helped me. And one of them is kind kind of changing my life philosophy. I think that um, I was unconsciously very wedded to the American um, narrative about how to be a human. And it's, you know, I already left Christianity. I know what it feels like to abandon a belief and I'm doing it again. I am abandoning the belief that I need to be exceptional, that I need to make a certain amount of money, that I need to look a certain way. Um, and so really changing what what I think living is like changing the philosophy of what it means to live and what are my values. That's been a big game changer. I didn't come to that naturally though. So like, if you're not there, you're not there. Wait, wait until you get there. But that was one thing that helped me also surrounding myself with really open hearted people, <clears throat> whether they're neurodivergent or otherwise people who understand the diversity of humanity, not just the beauty of neurodivergence, but the beauty in all of humanity including the the evangelical Christians that we are often complaining about, they are also being impacted by all these layers of society and messaging and religion that's been around here for a very long time. We're all struggling and we're all hurting and I can relate to it. <clears throat> so developing compassion and being around compassionate people, um, it's really hard to continue to hate yourself um, mm -hmm. and to beat yourself up when you surround yourself with those kinds of people and you raise your standards for what kind of hearts you want to hang out with. Um, I, I think another thing that's helped me, and again, I, I want to make the, the point that this isn't accessible for everyone. I realize that there's danger, uh, there's risk in all of this, but this is just assuming that that these are accessible things. I just want to put that disclaimer Fair. in there. Um, but for me, 
me, uh, another thing that has helped is talking about it all the time, like not, sure, not yeah. overwhelming people, but just like in, in conversation, just if it's relevant, just be like, Oh, Hey, could, you know, if my friend wants to hang out with me on Saturday morning, cause I, I saw, I walked past her house and she's like, Hey, let's hang out on Saturday morning. I'm like, great. I'm on a walk right now. I'm not going to write this down. I've got ADHD. Would you mind being accountable for texting me? Um, to remind me that we talked about this so I can get it on my calendar. And she's like, totes my goats. And I'm like, sweet. And so like, it's, it's normalizing that it's not being like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Could you just like, Oh, like, could you, yeah. like, or no. saying that you'll remember and yeah. then having like a 25, 50% chance of forgetting and then being so angry and upset with yourself and beating yourself up so that next time a situation like this comes up, you're so ashamed that you yeah. can't even think about speaking up uh, yeah. and you beat yourself up even more when it happens again. And it, I'm glad that you're breaking that cycle. Oh my God, I'm glad I am too. And I didn't think that <laughs> life could get better and it did. And and I think another thing that, I think the one of the two big things that really helped, um, I hired a, an ADHD coach. Mm. Uh, there is such a thing and her name is Tracy Winters and she's amazing. And she, uh, there is nothing like talking to someone who understands your brain, like the kind of validation that I've been dying for. Um, it's amazing. And like, there's, again, I'm narrowing in on ADHD, but there's, I'm sure there's analogous things for all other forms of neurodiversity as well. But there's a, a group called ADD.org and you can sign up for a membership for like $50 a year. Year. And you can go to all these online groups and stuff. And there's like even an ADHD group for entrepreneurs because we are incredibly creative people. And um, it's just, I've showed up in those groups and I just like, <laughs> like they're all <laughs> speaking my language. Oh my God. And you feel like, oh my God, I didn't even know I had a first language. It feels like you've been speaking in the second language your whole life and that you forgot that you had a first language. And then so reconnecting with this part of myself and connecting with people who relate to it makes me feel like, oh, I do belong. I I am a human being. Neurodiversity I... is my mother tongue. Yeah, yes. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that was most, I mean, boundary setting also is really sure. important because with ADHD, at least there's a lot of codependency that can come from that due to like insecure attachment styles. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> so learning about um, how to communicate about your boundaries is really helpful, but to, to be able to communicate about your boundaries, you really kind of have to connect to yourself. And so there's a lot of self, self-connection stuff that needs to be done. And it that's that's hard, especially for us uh, that maybe have come out of Christianity and been experienced spiritual abuse. That's it can be a scary place to go back into because that type it, of introspection and, and spiritual connection with the self. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as like, where are you going to find a community that's going to help you facilitate that without them bringing their woo into it and then thus triggering you. And so I'm concerned about our community when I say our, I mean, people recovering from spiritual abuse and Christianity. I'm concerned mm -hmm. about us because I have determined, at least for me, that my healing comes from connecting to myself, but I've been avoiding it or afraid of it because I've been I've put a barrier up around that center part of myself because of all of this stuff, man. And like, and now, yeah, now, Which so yeah, fair to, fair to do, you know, I, like, I'm is. glad that you're pushing through it, but let's also acknowledge the validity of that choice. So long as the folks who are listening to my voice right now are thinking intentionally about yeah. this as a choice rather than a reaction. Right. And I think, is it, in, I'm curious to see what you think about this, Christy, but I also, um, in our path, uh, over pathologizing uh, mental illness 
society, I have to, I want to challenge at least maybe some of the negativity associated with the word masking as if like, oh, I'm masking. Like, and that's like you bad. have to fix it. Yeah. 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 And they say, like it's something to fix, but humans aren't broken. And so when I, when I look back at my life and I think about everything that's led me up to here, I, I don't feel bad about masking. I feel like, holy shit, my brain is so smart because it went through all of this abuse and it was just like, we're just going to shut this down. <laughs> we're just mm. going just to turn it off. And if you're miserable for two decades, it's fine. Just keep trucking along, you know? <laughs> So like, I, I see it now, like for the beauty that it was, yes, it all hurt and stuff, but that, but I don't know, like there's something incredibly beautiful about that. And I hope that's not hard for some people to, so I'll only speak for myself that just reflecting back, I just, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful and in awe of my human body and of my consciousness to be able to do these things behind the scenes to block me from seeing me. It's just fascinating. Yeah. It's a, it's about appropriateness. I, I think that's uh, the only thing to be said about it. Like there's nothing wrong with having a customer service voice or putting a little bit of a lacquer or a nice veneer on the way that you express yourself. But we want to be aware of that thing because yeah. nobody wants to be married to a car salesman. Like they want <laughs> to see the sincere you in that type of uh, environment. And so yeah. just being mindful and intentional and yeah. self-aware about these things, which as you have pointed out, can be incredibly challenging. So yeah. uh, I, I hope that there are folks who are listening to this who are not like just throwing a diagnostic label on themselves and, and having themselves a pity party, but that are rather realizing that this is way more common than we realize, that this may explain some of the friction in your life. And by becoming aware of that fact, you might be a little bit more empowered to do something to benefit yourself. None of these are, none of us are broken. None of these are things that need to be fixed, but a little bit of self-awareness can go a long way towards making life uh, more pleasurable to live. Yeah. You know, one other um, thing that turns me on is <clears throat> the show Moon Knight, the new mm. Marvel show that's sure. come out. I will not give any spoilers. I was about to say, I, I did not catch last night's episode. Let's I, be mindful. <laughs> I didn't either. I didn't either. So all I'll say is that um, something that I've gotten from that show is that or rather an experience of my own that it has validated at a corporate like media Marvel <laughs> level is that sometimes all you have to do is just witness it. Yeah. Just I, by I looking good, at it. Because I think for, for a long time, I felt like I had to fix it. I had to make a plan, a strategy. I'm a project to be fixed. And I'm slowly learning that just by looking at it in the eyes and saying, this is what this is, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it can calm down. The distress can reduce um, just by witnessing. It's just crazy. All this like American like, like, I'm gonna get zen <laughs> like <laughs> it's just it's just letting go and and being soft and gentle and just witnessing and and holding space for yourself to be sad and have whatever feelings you need to have about that which you are mm -hmm. well fair to say uh i'll tell you what we've got a small stack of uh, calls coming in mm -hmm. uh so let's go ahead and uh speak quickly to uh drew in oklahoma uh drew what's on your mind tonight hi um well I I just saw the questionnaire and the answer and topic and wanted to call in because this one, as a neurodivergent person, I was interested in the masking discussion, but that came up after I had already called in. I'm 
instead of ever really masking, I'm on the autism spectrum and my mom just introduced me to uh, etiquette videos really young. And so I had rules that I could rely on instead of masking because it was just actually being taught that. But yes, there's regard- a level of intentionality of knowing that you're following the script rather than on a like internal level, awkwardly berating yourself without realizing it for struggling to follow the script. Is that at all a fair way of describing it for you? Absolutely. I just think that we don't actively teach people enough who are neurodivergent, give them a chance to try to learn the rules of society because it's just, we don't do that stuff anymore. Mm. Etiquette is- I don't know, I would would challenge you, Drew, because there are no rules of society. There's just the rules of your demographic, you know, like the- Mm. Your your class, yeah. Yeah, so there there aren't really any rules and you can learn rules and then go- I wouldn't necessarily say rules of society, but, uh, not necessarily that there are rules of society, but if you have a pre-programmed set of rules you can rely on as this is a good way to be, if not social, polite and acceptable. A codified you're uh, off, etiquette. Yeah, that's why I was, I come up, I think I come off more as eccentric, not weird, because I'm hmm. probably overly more formal and polite but i'm not saying that this is like a need to do thing i just think it's a great tool for people who want to learn these subtle things about social socializing yeah i I mean to be fair there is a there's a show called love on the spectrum and i'm sure people have varied opinions about that and that's not the point i'm trying to make but there is a person that comes on to the show who coaches so they're like a person who coaches people on the spectrum who need social skills and so she doesn't really explicitly say say this or say that but like more general things of like you know if you're having a conversation with someone try to find out if you have something in interest like in common and interests and so it's like things like that so it's not explicit but more general like how do you get someone to feel connected and like how to get conversation flowing and 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 that kind of thing and i think that's incredibly powerful yeah that makes sense i think maybe it applied more when i was a really little kid because but also since the topic was more about the love life i i've just found I think it's my neurodivergence in this case, but I've, it hasn't ever been very important to me because I, I think it ties into one of my side effects of autism combined with face blindness. I never think that people are talking about me and so assume that nobody is, even if I, and that nobody ever worries about if you're talking mm-hmm. it, I have trouble believing people worry about what other people think of them. And so I think I'm the same way romance stuff is like, that sounds nice. Uh, I could get to that eventually, but it's not pressing because there's no external feeling that people are judging me for it. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly fair. Like, yeah, like we've been saying, like, defer to your brain. If you're comfortable, in it, you know, then that's that's good. Yeah. So uh, before we uh, take on our next caller, Drew, uh, is there anything in particular that you might be able to pass on? Any particular advice about how to be uh, more uh, transparent or sincere or, or maybe present could be a better term for it in uh, maybe in a romantic setting or, or really just in your social life? Um, I think that one of the biggest problems is that people 
put too much emphasis on spectacle with romantic stuff. They assume that the actions have to be different because the emotion behind them is different. When I think just explaining the context, an action that could be a friendly gift can just as well be a really romantic action. Mm -hmm. And I think I understand what I you mean. Just like allowing, you know, allowing behaviors to kind of bleed between romance and platonic. Is that what you're kind of saying? Allowing, yeah, maybe. Oh, no. I is was that saying right? that I a kind kind of. I was saying that I I feel people separate them too much, and so they feel that they can't do something that might normally be platonic because romance has to be something more. When the mm. something more probably just comes from it being romantic instead of it needing to be a truly different action. It's the emotional context that matters more than the physical activity. Hmm. Yeah, well, and I, I think it encourages us to be explicit, uh, to say, you know, I'm giving this to you because, and I uh, was hoping to express this feeling, or this is the idea that I wanted to share with you. Uh, and I think building a more accepting, a less ableist, a more uh, like neurodiverse, accommodating world involves a lot of being willing to explain ourselves, like being willing to say the quiet part out loud and be explicit in ways that uh, we've been socialized to think is somehow like tacky or weird or wrong. And I, I really reject that. Yeah. Yeah, I really yeah, want to encourage everybody to be willing to to be explicit and to not feel like they have to be suave and charming by being secretive, particularly if you're in a neurodiverse relationship. Yes, that's it exactly. Thank you. <laughs> that's well, great. I, Thank you, Drew. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, highlighting that for us. And, and I think giving us all permission a little bit because it can feel very prescriptive to uh, to tell people like, you need to use more words. But when we start to recognize how it actually shows up in our lives and the complications and the pain that it can cause by uh, being sly or shy, uh, it, it becomes a little bit more clear why we communicate with each other. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for calling. You have a wonderful night. All right. Uh, well, let's take a moment and see what's been going on around the rest of the ACA. You have permission to get out of your head, to stop worrying about what a bullshit culture or a hypothetical future person or a bunch of 2,000-year-old Jewish poetry has to say about the subject. <laughs> Enjoy your life. The, this is a really good example. Two examples mm -hmm. of two polar opposite abortion calls. Yes. You could choose the John way yeah. or you could choose the right way to do these <laughs> calls. We can be civil or we can get our teeth out atheists are here to ruin your fun or whatever like that seems to be what the but jessica what we, we are up with over and over oh my god i hate fun i famously <laughs> hate fun thank you for bringing that up so i can talk about it now no fun problem. is terrible steven i yeah. was taught a lot of stuff too yeah. when i was when i was yeah. younger and which was right. every part of my life i was younger than i am right now and and historically yeah historically speaking but back when you were johnny p cherub <laughs> The origin of life is irrelevant to whether or not we. Uh, the origin of life no, is irrelevant actually, to what. You just would you what shut I the f up and listen to me, Jay? I'm answering your question, and then you won't be as ignorant as you were before. I feel like we're talking to an evangelical Christian meme generator. Yeah. <laughs> With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Well, let's touch base with uh, Emily in Australia who wanted to talk to us about asexuality. Uh, Emily, what's on your mind tonight? Hi. Hi. Um, and thanks for bringing up that I want to talk about asexuality, but I'm also ADHD. And um, I just want to say, Marie, do you think it took so long uh, for you to get diagnosed because ADHD is seen as a little boy's disease? I, yeah, like at a social level, yeah, um, definitely. There's a little echo in the back, or what is that? Uh, that might be my baby. Oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> Hi, baby. Life, life happens. Hello, baby. Hi, Emily's baby. Um, let's see. So, yeah, I think factually, yeah, very likely I didn't get diagnosed because of um, society defining ADHD as hyper boys. Um, society already socializes uh, people born with uh, vaginas <laughs> to uh, to be compliant, to mask, to sit still. And so if you see a hyperactive boy who has ADHD and a and a ADHD girl who's quiet, there is more internal distress in that girl because she's holding it all in. Mm -hmm. And that's that was me in my childhood. And nobody saw it because I wasn't expressing it outwards because I was already taught at a multitude of other levels that it was not okay for me to be big, you know, and that was a constant recurring theme in my childhood is constantly feeling like I'm too big, I'm too loud, I'm too noisy, I'm too nerdy, nobody likes me, how do I temper this? There was emails with my sister going back and forth about like, how can I stay calm when I go to youth group, I get all excited and talk and then people get annoyed and like, yeah, and and just nobody saw it. And then moreover, like the, the family system I was born in was not super psychologically savvy. And the school, you know, in the 80s, <clears throat> at least the school I went to, was not as psychologically savvy as how I perceive schools to be now. A lot has changed in society, um, and we're a little bit more concerned with that. So I think there's a lot of factors. Oh, and then growing up evangelical, of course, because like ADHD, that's that's a that, to some forms of Christianity or religion that can be a huge threat to their entire structure because that. They think that like who you are is just like, that's what God made you to be or something. And so you can't actually have like a thing in your brain that makes you act differently or whatever. So there all was of just your all... behaviors are choices, uh, even and especially yeah. the sinful ones. Exactly. Thank you for summarizing up for that for me because it was hard to put into words. But yeah, I think there was a lot of factors involved in that. Yeah, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 22. And like, then I told my parents and they're like, no, you're not. I'm like, cool. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate your yeah. opinion no, on my I, brain. <laughs> uh, I originally called because, I don't know, 
I was wondering if there was something. So I'm I'm also asexual, and I was wondering if there was something that just is turned off in my brain that doesn't make me experience sexual attraction, or because I didn't have any um, trauma or anything. Like this is just mm -hmm. how I've always been. That's yeah, a legitimate so way to be. Go ahead, Christy. Absolutely. Well, it's important to recognize that in terms of like a a cause or a thing that we could point to on an MRI or something uh, with regards to asexuality, the only thing that we really can say for certain is that there's not a cause, but probably dozens or, or even hundreds or thousands. I, I definitely want to echo what Marie said. It's a perfectly valid way to be. It's just a different way of being from the norm, but also in a way, so is everything else. Yeah. So I, I really, really want to recognize that. We don't really know what causes asexuality. You uh, mentioned uh, the idea of trauma, and that's a very complicated notion. Certainly there are people who experience trauma and then become sort of cut off from their sexuality and may find themselves uh, a home in the uh, aspec community. But also there are plenty of healthy, happy, wonderful people who have never experienced any sort of trauma to their sexuality who seem to just be born this way. And perhaps there is a interaction of uh, prenatal hormones as well as some level of socialization throughout life. But that's going to be true of really any major trait. And we can't point towards anything particularly specific. For our conversation tonight, I guess I will highlight that there seems to be an incredible concordance between uh, asexuality and neurodivergence. That might be because neurodivergent people are just more likely to uh, acknowledge their asexuality or to talk about it and to organize themselves around it. But I don't know that that necessarily covers what we see on a statistical level. So we've talked about this episode a, a couple of times on the show, and I will make sure to have some links in the footnotes, and then I will stop uh, rambling because this is a really interesting question that we don't have a good answer for. But most importantly, you're okay. You're okay mm -hmm. just as you are. I, I caught myself thinking here, like, would Emily be calling if someone didn't tell her that sexuality was expected of her? Mm -hmm. Like, do you feel distressed because you feel like you don't match up to society's expectations? Or do you feel distressed because you've always wanted to have sex, but yet you don't or something like that, you know? So like, it, that's the interesting thing about psychology, in my opinion, uh, is that most of the DSM, a lot of the criterion have to do with does the patient experience distress for this symptom in order mm -hmm. for that criterion to be fulfilled. And so it's all incredibly subjective. So you get to ask yourself, am I okay with this? Does this feel right inside of me? And if not, what is the direction that I want to go in and, and really doing some introspection to see, you know, what might be keeping you from finding that part of yourself? And I'll just highlight that there's a, a meaningful difference between distress from a symptom and distress from society's acknowledgement or interaction with that symptom. Yeah. Not to say that they don't both cause distress, but it's a, important to recognize what's you and what's your culture, your environment, your family, perhaps. Mm. Emily, did you have any other questions for us tonight or uh, did that help clarify things at all? I think we might have lost her. Yeah. So we let's still said talk... some smart stuff, though. For sure. Let's talk to uh, oh, Jay in Utah before we go back to the uh, back to the interview. Uh, Jay, what can we do for you tonight? Hey there. Hi. I just wanted to call in to um, just 
the the topic really resonated with me and hearing Marie talk about their experiences um, also really resonated. Um, I'm a late, late diagnosed um, person with ADHD as well. And after I got diagnosed, there were so many things that just like, like what? Like no one else experiences this? Like, like, and, and also I think a tricky thing, like thinking back also along those lines is like not feeling um, like the what ifs of like, what if I would have gotten diagnosed earlier? Would my life have been different? You know, like things along that line. And I think the main thing that I wanted to talk about was, um, I guess, a problem that I typically have um, in my my sexual relationships. I typically um, participate in like uh, like ethical like non monogamy, and um, like the majority of my relationships have just been like um, very like long term friends with benefits. And one thing that I don't know if this is. Uh, like I kind of, I, I have to overthink and I have to, but I think a common thing with ADHD that Marie touched on was like hyper-focusing on like, okay, like I have to ask about this and ask about that. And um, like whether it's um, like STIs and, and have they been screened recently and um, and pregnancy and, you know, like all of these and, and consent and what things do they like, what things do they not like and making sure to get everything on the table. And sometimes that's a really big turnoff, I guess, for a lot of people. But for me, it's like, like, this is what I want to know, like to fully be like mentally engaged with this person. And when that doesn't follow through or like when that isn't reciprocated, I feel like this really big sense of like, I've like, I've looked it up online and done like some, like look, there's some research articles that have been written about it. I'm sure Christy, you, you can speak more about it, but like the idea of justice sensitivity and like, like, Oh, like I explicitly told them like, these were my boundaries and these are the things I'm comfortable with and what I expect out of this relationship. And they go around and they, they just disregard all like everything that I just told them what, what's happening. So I think that's, that's been something that's really hard to navigate. Yeah, no, absolutely. That need for uh, very explicit communication, uh, especially around any anxious uncertainties, like wanting to be really clear, not uh, leaving it to chance about, uh, well, I don't want to offend this person by talking about their STI health or their you know most recent tests or, or things like that. That's going to be especially hard for somebody who is neurodivergent. And also just bad advice as a person, like there's so much value in being explicit in the way that we communicate with each other. I, I think it's one of the reasons that uh, you see in poly communities and in kink communities, uh, a lot of people who are neurodivergent because there's so much explicit and intentional communication as opposed to what is sort of like culturally assumed in, in much more conventional relationships. Hmm. I know that uh, I'm finding it very difficult in the last few months to watch TV where um, anyone is getting into a kind of a sexual relationship without talking about it, which is, I don't know, all TV ever. All TV ever, yeah. You're just like, look at that body. And then you just like jump on (laughs) it and then they perform sex, which usually involves a penis going into the vagina and then that vagina orgasming upon contact. So it's like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's bullshit. And like, and I'm, 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 yeah, I'm trying to 
continually add more explicit conversation to sexual encounters. And I can relate a lot to what you're saying in terms of like, in the past, I wasn't explicit, and then things just happen, and I just let them happen. And and then I just keep betraying my body and sex never feels quite right. Um, and now I'm moving into a space where I'm being more explicit. And so that means that sometimes when I'm being explicit, I experience this rejection sensitivity of like, are they going to be like, oh, Marie asks for too many things. Marie's too explicit. You know, sex is supposed to be mysterious and like, can it still be sexy if you literally make an agenda, you know, like, but my experience says that at first, like the the transition into that more explicit communicative style is awkward um, because you're not used to it. You don't see any modeling of it on TV. You certainly probably haven't seen your parents do it or anyone in your life do it because nobody talks about sex, first mm -hmm. of all. Yep. So how the fuck do we know what people are doing and what's normal? So I've had, like most of us, we had to learn it on our own, right? And so, so I'm starting to practice more explicit um, communication and sexual interactions. But like I said, at first it's awkward, but now I've gotten a little bit more used to it. And now I'm just like, this is the jam, man, to like, to, can you just imagine having sex and not worrying about whether the other person is like enjoying themselves or if this is what they want to do or if they think that, you know, just there's so much anxiety and rumination that can come from feeling insecure and unattached in, uh, in sexual in interactions. And so, so it's, I think it's worth it. And, and like tension transitioning to that style is to be expected. And it's not an indicator that you're going the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, the, oh, the biggest rejection sensitivity punch to the gut I ever felt was with a a hookup I once had and I was so excited because I think it had been like maybe like around the year anniversary of when I got my IUD and I, I was so excited to talk to them about it and we're like mid having sex and me just rambling on about how my IUD is amazing and like we don't have to worry about XYZ and, and afterwards come to my surprise they don't want to, to you know see me again because like yeah that was like that really turned me off I'm like oh, darn it like Addition by subtraction. That's, that's just a good right. filter. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you that yeah. um, just to relate to you in a very personal and very recent way, I have never really talked to a partner about my period, about period sex. Like, I only just did that maybe three weeks ago because I'm going to be seeing some of my long distance partners in about a month from now. <clears throat> and, uh, calendar says that <laughs> I'm going to have my period when I go visit them. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit, now's the time to talk about this, I guess, now that we're unmasking, now that we're being more explicit. And so, so I had those fears of what you've experienced with that person in the IUD thing of like, you know, if I bring up my period, are they going to be like, ew, can we just delay, you know, ew, right? You know, and especially if you identify as a woman and you uh, hook up with people who are men or whatever, there's a lot of disclaimers in there but you know what i mean but like um if you've been socialized as a woman you uh likely have internalized men's um i'm gonna i'm gonna say a word i'm not committed to it but misogyny like men's discomfort with women with um how our bodies work with our periods our menstruation um even birthing children um we don't need to own that we do not need to own that. I'm going to find me a grown ass man 
<laughs> who doesn't mind having, I mean, even I would even be fine if he didn't want to have um, sex, you know, when I'm having a, my period and, and that would be okay. Like it, it's just a matter of talking about it, you know, it, but not being shamed that my body's disgusting or something like that. Like all of this can, can be discussed. And that's, I think maybe that's the most important thing. Not that not necessarily that the other person is like, yeah, I'll do anything and everything. And you can talk about everything and nothing grosses me out. And I accept everything about you and I have no boundaries at all. And you're great. But so more so just like, just feeling like you can talk about these things and that your opinion is important and that their opinion is important, that you respect each other's boundaries and that you can have that conversation, I think is the most important thing. Yeah, being able to just <laughs> communicate around it and acknowledge that there's a conversation to be had is so valuable. Definitely. Um, I think that idea of like that you factor in the rejection sensitivity around that had brought up like um, typically like it's been two years, you know, I don't know when I'm going to have another like romantic partner again in the, in the near future. But previously, um, I like, I would wait a certain number of, of like hookups to, to like have oral sex with that person because I, I like was explicitly trying to avoid a potential rejection sensitivity because of that internalized misogyny. Um, so I really felt you when you when you said that, Marie. Mm, I mean, I'll just extend that into body dysmorphia. Like I, uh, some of the roots of my body dysmorphia have to do with my ownership of men's misogyny and their their Barbie request. You know, like it's it's and that's part of some of the paranoia that I feel about my body and my posture and the shape of my body, the way that I. Uh, dress myself for the world. It's it's um, I I know inside of me. I speak for no one but myself. That that comes from um, owning the messages that I've uh, ingested from society about men's discomfort with with women, with their demand that women be a certain way in order to be consumable. But I'm not a goddamn edible. I am a, I'm a person. I am, I am, I'm a full person. <laughs> I don't, yeah, it, but it's, and that's, that's me saying that with my words and words mean nothing. I'm working on getting that into my body as well. And that's, that's a, that's a tricky part, but I think one of the first steps is getting it into your words and then hopefully later it'll merge into your body and your beliefs as well. Very true. Yeah, well, Jay, I so appreciate you giving us a call tonight and getting us kicked off because we are going to continue to discuss uh, how masking and neurodivergence shows up in our sex life. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks Thank you, Emily. Calling. Or excuse Take me, care. Jay. Yeah, so Jay got the ball rolling. Uh, but what else can you tell us about some of the, the warning signs or, or maybe some of the particular challenges that show up when uh, masking is becoming part of our sexuality? Well... <laughs> <laughs> This is an interesting part to talk about because I'm still living it, you know, sure. um, the challenges. I mean, what are the challenges? It's it's for me in my body and in my brain. It feels like the whole world will fall apart if I say something, mm. you know, um, something that I find myself doing frequently. And um, this is difficult for me to be vulnerable <laughs> while let's see how many people are watching. Uh, 41 <laughs> people, 41 people are watching me say this now. Um, one of the things that I know a lot is that I will be get so caught up in my thoughts, my ruminations about the interaction and do I look right? Are they thinking about this? Are they reading into my eyes being closed? Are they reading into the face that I'm making? Do they 
are they I'm so concerned about them feeling rejection that I'm not there at all. I'm not uh, experiencing anything in my body. I um, am performing and I don't try to do it. It's so overwhelming. It happens kind of on its own. And, um, and so that results in me physically masking, um, which means like often I notice my body is really tense, um, like almost like down to the bone. I can just feel this deep tension in my body while I'm having sex and, and feeling this way. Um, and I, I mask it. I don't say, I don't say anything. Cause it's like, I, when I try to get my brain to say something, it's just like, no, that's too, this is too big of a thing to interrupt. Like mm. really you're going to like, there's something that feels like sacred <clears throat> about having sex with your partner that you're not supposed to interrupt it. You're supposed to be cool, you know? And like, that's this like, there's no room for about... bodily functions. There's no yeah. room for odors or stray hairs no. or, or no. yeah. Yeah. It has I, to be perfect. And so like I end up just like uh, uh, something I notice that I do a lot is I end up like moving my hips a lot. Like if I'm underneath and I'm getting like pleasure or something like I'll move my hips when I don't I don't want to like <clears throat> I I experience the most pleasure when I don't have to do shit and I just lay there super <laughs> sure. flaccid and and that because when I lay there super like relaxed, then that means that this little awareness thing that's in my brain goes zoomp. And it goes into one little spot and then I can send it wherever I want to because I'm not worried about controlling any other part your focus of my... and your attention can be where you want it. I mean, really, yes. in a lot of ways, we're just describing mindfulness, which yes. I think we could all benefit from being more mindful during sex. But I, I want to really highlight the way that masking shows up uh, like when we're actually in the act of sex. Yeah. You know, uh, last week we got to talk to uh, performer Sin Sage and I asked her about about what it is like having sex on camera. And she talked about how you are always sort of like turning out towards the camera. Like you're always giving it your best angle. You're always uh, being aware and having to hold in your working memory, hold in your awareness where that camera is. And mm. I, I feel like that's a beautiful metaphor for what we're talking for here because there is this like constant desire to be stage worthy, to be putting on a show and a performance mm without necessarily like having sex because you like having sex or like being present and experiencing the experience. Mm -hmm. It's hard, man. And <clears throat> that's why uh, I like that you brought it back to, to mindfulness, which again, like I mentioned at the top, the show can be uh, particularly difficult for people who have experienced spiritual abuse. I've been prescribed meditation for 20 years and each time I go, fuck you. Do you have any idea what it's <laughs> sure. like to show up in my mind? Yeah. Who wants to hang idea? out in there? <laughs> There, there, nothing good came from that until I got diagnosed and un, and began to understand my mind. Like meditation was actually just traumatic, you know? So like, just, I just want to put that caveat out there in case that resonates with people that not everyone can access mindfulness and has trauma around being present, that they shouldn't just try to be present, you know, like sure. that there's some trauma there to, to deal with. But <clears throat> I'm going to just for those quickly who... before you move on, interject uh, the idea of backdraft. Uh, we don't have to go into any detail, but what Marie is describing here, if it's something you experience when you try to meditate, spend some time Googling that notion and know that finding mindfulness uh, is achievable for everybody, but it can it can have some discomfort and some pain early on. And 
there are useful strategies and uh, good professionals that can help you work through that. Uh, but Maria, uh, please continue. Thank you. I mean, thank you for injecting that because I'd never heard of that word. I'm going to go Google that shit after this. So <laughs> it's at least one way of describing it that I really like. Uh, shout out yeah. Christopher Germer, but keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all got to find our ways to organize our minds and, and that can be a unique process. Um, but <clears throat> excuse me, my throat is getting dry after talking this much. But um, yeah, I think one of the things, oh, see, I told you, I told you I was going to get losing my thoughts uh, backdraft. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, I will you. make sure to have a, a more detailed description of that idea in the uh, notes that accompany this episode, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was just trying to remember what I was trying to say before that. Uh, I just got lost, the ADHD. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, so no, we can we... move on a little bit, but we sure. were talking about the different ways that uh, that we perform and that we feel like we are on stage and that we have to impress people rather than actually just being mindful and present and enjoying the experience for the sake of enjoying the experience. Thank you. Thank you very much. That did cue up the thing that I wanted to share about mindfulness. Um, and that's something that I've been working on Um and I've kind of had to do it my own way because I don't I haven't really encountered any materials that that talked about it the way that I needed to hear it, which is not unusual at all for ADHD because we're very unique uh, the way that we understand things. Uh, no, I'm going to go back to me the way I understand things. But so mindfulness for me. Um, I try to envision like that, that I, I define myself as like a spotlight. I, I think I am a spotlight and I can watch all of the thoughts in my head and I can just get enraptured with that story. And that's just my entire existence is watching all of this stuff going on. And that's all I watch It's just 24 hour news, CNN, everything's happening. And so mindfulness for me is finding that spotlight, identifying it, and then being able to like hone in on on it and then pointing it, pointing mm. it. Um, oftentimes when I'm feeling dissociated or really anxious or something, I'll be like, well, where's my awareness right now? Usually it's watching CNN is the metaphor I'm going to give for that. It's in the stream of consciousness space. And so I'll practice trying to open it up and like intentionally saying, what does my environment feel like? What does it feel like to feel the space of this room? What does it feel like smell like getting grounded, right? And sure. getting into this space and remembering that you have a lot of choices choices of what you can pay attention to. One of those is CNN <laughs> in your head, but that's just one thing. And if you're, if that's the only thing you're paying attention to, you might mistake that for you. You're the choice. You're the choice behind that spotlight. And you can, and that's, and that's, that's what's helped me understand mindfulness a little bit better. Like mindfulness is pointing my spotlight in a particular direction so that I can see that I'm not my thought. And then in that way, start to actually kind of get to know what the contents of my thoughts are so I can live my life more consciously and less from the neural pathways that have been so ingrained in me for so long. And a lot of this also has to do for me uh, with ADHD and living in the culture that we live in is detoxing from urgency culture. And Christy, I think you and I were talking about that earlier. You talked about the sacred pause. I go on these walks where I try to go as slow as I possibly can mm. and stop regularly to drink coffee and sit down and watch the birds and just think about what their culture is like. I once audited a class on geese. I sat in front of them and watched them interact and fight with each other. And I was like, well, isn't this interesting? We have a lot in common. <laughs> and so like, it's been really healing for me to kind of slow down and remember what 
story I'm a part of. I don't need to be a part of this American uh, story or whatever it is that we're all doing here. You get to write your own story for all of this stuff. And I like the story where I'm a, I'm an, I'm an ape here and I have a body that's capable of feeling a lot of contentedness with being alive, regardless of what I have access to. Um, so just a lot of that kind of work is helping me get more in my body. So maybe another word is embodiment. I think, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a common thing for neurodiverse people. I know that I've been very disembodied and I think Poor it's also a consequence of- is often associated with yeah. neurodivergence. Interoception, that uh, sense of what your own emotions are. And, uh, you know, it was noticing that in myself actually that led me on a path towards seeking my own diagnosis. I love that. I, I'm so glad that you brought that word up, interoception, because the 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 day that I heard that word, which was like maybe like four weeks ago, I was like, "There it is." Yeah, there's a <laughs> there term it for it, right? It's the the ability to be able to perceive your own internal experience, and I feel like mine was very. Um, underdeveloped. Um, and I think, again, this weaves into my whole story of my life. I had an eating disorder. I've had a lot of, I have a lot of habits that are hard to quit. My relationships are really codependent. Co and I think it's just all intertwined with being disembodied, being, having poor interoception skills. And then moreover, if you're experiencing something like evangelical Christianity that literally instructs you to cut yourself off from your body and yeah, to, to say deny that flesh and to listen to the spirit and power through yeah. in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I think uh, a lot of humanity is really struggling with feeling disembodied in particular, perhaps people that are coming out of Christianity and have that kind of spiritual abuse and maybe haven't addressed the fact that they they still are a, are, are a body and that there is a, a fullness of life that can be experienced when you connect to that. Yeah. Well, I uh, find these ideas to be really beautiful for folks who uh, are neurodivergent and, and for folks who aren't. I mean, these ideas of being more mindful, of more present, maybe slowing down a little mm -hmm. bit around our sexuality. Uh, I, I think this is so incredibly important, just the value of taking taking a pause and asking yourself, what am I thinking about right now? What am I feeling right now? What am I wanting or needing right now? Instead of trying to perform and play out the porn star script that we have all memorized, or, or perhaps even worse, working out the type of sex that we are supposed to have in this relationship. Yeah, you know, We don't need uh, Cosmo Magazine's 50 ideas of how to spice up our sex life. We just need to stop doing reruns and trying to recreate the sex that we had last time and the time before that and just be in the room mm. co-creating and and experiencing mm. rather than expecting yeah yeah i like that and that makes me think of an, another practice that i'm working on which is to get to know what i like you know and that's a scary process for some of us especially if we've been covering up who we are for our whole lives for whatever reasons um it's it i've had so many clients say like i don't even know what i like i don't know who i am mm. and not that long ago i wouldn't have been able to tell them how to find that out and and that's that's another thing that i worry about for people suffering from spiritual abuse is they might be disconnected to their ability to know if they like something or not and that's kind of interoception a little bit i like using the metaphor of the heart i don't let i'm not sure if that's literally a thing but i use it as a way to describe it but um i like to try to practice checking in with my heart or 
my gut metaphorically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an interoceptive thing where you just kind of look inwards and like, do I like this right now? Like even in this moment, I can ask myself, do I like doing this show right now? Do I feel comfortable? Do I feel safe? Do I feel like I'm being myself? And I'm checking my body. And for the most part, yeah, I'm a little anxious, but I feel really good about myself. I feel really safe talking to Christy, you know, and it's things like that. And it's practicing noticing if you like something. And so you can do that at all levels of your life. You can practice. Um, do you like this song? Do you like this <laughs> song? And what do you, what is it about it that you like? Is it the drum beat? Like, listen, I mean, don't answer right away. Listen to it for a little bit and find out where is your brain going? Is it focusing on the drums? Is it fo focusing on the piano? Is it focusing on the voice? Or, you know, so like you can take anything in your life and make it an opportunity to, for you to discover what it is that you like because sexuality can be such a loaded thing and it, it could be a lot to ask you to start practicing this in the bedroom immediately sure so so it can be cool to try it in different ways even the way you dress yourself do i like do i like the shirt i'm wearing today do i do i like how my hair looks today do i and not in a judgmental way just like do i like it do I like this food? Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can recognize that being uh, judgmental and constantly trying to weigh and measure and evaluate everything uh, can can drive us crazy. And again, lead to more like expectations, which uh, we've said before is the enemy of experience. But being non-judgmental is not the same thing as being non-preferential, right? Yeah. Like, we can acknowledge that we are not looking to uh, be judgmental of the world world while still recognizing that we'd like to change it. We'd like to be working on it. We'd like to see it be different. Uh, Marie, we wouldn't be here having these conversations. We wouldn't be volunteering to try and spread positive atheism throughout the world and to encourage healthy and happy sexuality if we didn't prefer that outcome. And that's not the same thing as being judgmental. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we, we've covered a, a lot of ground here and there's still so much more to say, so much more I'm, I'm kicking myself for not having had a chance to talk about. Uh, but I, I wanted to check in and just see if there were any particular pieces of uh, of next step type advice that you'd like to recommend for anybody listening. Because I know there are a lot of people in the chat, a lot of people watching right now that are all of a sudden going, oh my God, this might be me. So any uh, routine Routines or practices, uh, a particular book or resource. Uh, what what comes to mind? So, in terms of resources, um, the things that really made a difference to me when I uh, got diagnosed, or the things that have made a difference to me over time here, um, are a couple of books that I read. And I know that I'm recommending books to people with ADHD, and I see you, and I and I recognize that. And um, I know that uh, people with ADHD can sometimes prefer audio books. So, regardless, I'm still going to give the recommendation. Um, if you want cliff notes, I could send them to you. But uh, <laughs> there's uh, a book called Scattered Minds. And it's by someone named Gabor Mate. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. If you just look for Scattered Minds, you'll find that book. And it's it's about neurodivergence. And it talks a lot about the um, origins of it. That's a neurological disorder that is is comes about in infancy. And so it comes about it from, from that perspective. And that 
that is really what started knitting my whole life together and really just made sense out of everything and and has helped me integrate all versions of myself um which i had felt very disconnected from i'd always kind of felt like my past was just a movie that i watched too many times mm -hmm. very dissociated from it and i feel much more integrated as a person now like i remember having those experiences now and i understand them better so scattered minds is a really great book for that and then the second book i'd recommend is called um neurodivergent mind and it's by Janara Nirenberg. And I'm not even going to try to spell it because just don't just Google neurodivergent mind and then like add the word book and then Google will do the rest <laughs> of the work for you. And it's been so long since I read it, but I, my brain just has reminded me that it's a really good book. So I don't have any further details, but that, that was one of the first ones that I read. And it was just very, I remember it being very illuminating. Those are two really great resources. Plus if you're talking about ADHD, ADD.org is a really great mm -hmm. organization that offers a lot of meetings and that kind of thing or getting an ADHD coach like I do with Tracy Winters is incredibly helpful. Um, yeah, and just <laughs> following as many accounts as possible, finding all of the memes, like looking for the hashtags and just finding- Neurodivergent meme culture is quite excellent. It's and, on par, uh, man. It, you know, we could have an entire like hour long philosophical discussion about this, but uh, because neurodivergence is so closely tied to our experience of the world, our, our consciousness or uh, our perception, if you will, I feel like our language really fails us and meme culture is a a meaningful antidote for that uh, yeah. i really think that you know silly dick jokes uh printed on pictures from movies that you like may not seem particularly uh, academic or sophisticated but i, I do think that there's a sincere value there <laughs> Yes, there is. I mean, that, that was a huge source of uh, community for me at the very beginning. I've kind of stopped following memes and stuff now because sometimes they can just be like, boy, I do this really shitty thing and it's really funny. ADHD. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair. <laughs> and then you kind of giggle and like nothing against it. It's just like, for me, I'm going to say a word. I don't really mean it, but like energetically, that just doesn't really get me where I want to go with this, which I really want to be very productive and compassionate and positive and moving forward and building. And sometimes those memes are just like, sucks to be me. <laughs> But I'm funny. <laughs> yeah, well, fair to say, fair to say. Uh, like everything that you find on the internet, uh, take it with a little bit of a caveat and uh, a little bit of uh, of wisdom. Uh, but Marie, this has been so much fun. It has been uh, way too long since we have had you back. Uh, I, I think we need to work on getting you that five timers jacket that I, I know is now overdue. <laughs> uh, but for <laughs> folks who are more curious about you and, and want to know more about your podcast and about the work that you do uh where should people track you down yeah thanks for letting me pedal my goods man uh yeah i do coaching for basically everything i've just talked about i don't even know how to narrow it down it's about spiritual abuse it's about neurodiversity it's about ethical non-monogamy religious trauma all of those things and um so i do coaching but i also have a podcast that i put out where i kind of talk about these philosophical musings and so you can find more out about that at marie page.com. I also do a couple of support groups for ethical non-monogamy that are online and for free and that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's most of the cool stuff that I do. So yeah, marielepage.com. Okay. 
Awesome. Uh, and I will definitely remind people that all of the books that you've talked about, all of your previous episodes with us, uh, as well as so many of the other things that we've discussed tonight are going to be linked in the show notes uh, to this episode. Uh, but for now, I want to remind people about so many of the great offerings and community that exists around the ACA. Uh, of course, at tiny.cc slash AEN podcast, you can connect with all of the ACA shows in a quick podcast format. Uh, you can find the notes and the references and so much of what we've been discussing in the Secular Sexuality Facebook fan group, which is going to be at tiny.cc slash FBS. SG. Uh, this conversation has been much too short. And so if you are catching us live on Thursday night, uh, after the show, Marie and I are going to keep it going at tiny.cc slash ACD Discord in the atheist community of Discord. Uh, we have yet another incredible shirt to tell you about in our merch store. So please take a look if you haven't already at tiny.cc slash merch ACA. And the most important part of every week where we take a, a quiet moment to look, get revved up by our sexy, sexy, sexy crew cam and uh, take a moment to thank all of the people that helped Marie and I uh, look so good. Much too sexy for this Woo! cam. Thank you so much for all of y'all's help. And, uh, and <laughs> finally, Marie, before we uh, walk out the door tonight, uh, we have covered so much ground and we have dealt with something that is uh, is really like deeply intimate. You know, we're talking about the inside of our own minds, let alone our love lives and our sexuality and our relationships. But that is also huge and, and societal and I think overlooked just in, in terms of like prevalence and, and significance mm. with all of that sort of floating through our minds. Are, are there any uh, like final thoughts or any parting words that you'd like to leave with the audience tonight? My first thought is <clears throat> take a deep breath because this is heavy. This is mm -hmm. really heavy to come to terms with your neurodivergent diversion. It's heavy to recognize the state of culture and what it has caused and what it is repressing and what it's stealing from us. And it, if you're realizing that you resonate with some of this stuff for the first time, it could be incredibly jarring. And if you don't have the skills yet to manage your reaction to it, you might feel some struggle tonight. So my big thought is to uh, be really gentle and thoughtful and contemplative and compassionate tonight if at all possible with yourself because mm -hmm. um, I know that this is a playful show and everything but this is this is some real shit and you really do live in your body and and this is really in your mind now so yeah <laughs> be compassionate because I'm gonna I am too I know I'm here I know I'm talking and everything but I feel it in my body too this is hard to talk about and I'm gonna have to do some self-care after this and breathe because I can I can feel like you know my body's a little bit adrenalized and worked up and you know I've been looking at myself talking all night and not looking at the comments because my rejection sensitivity would be too much and I just can't do it. So, so take care of yourself. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know, you're getting a, a lot of love in the comments. Yeah. Uh, it has absolutely been too long since you've been here. Uh, but I will, I'll just reiterate that, that, uh, that pain, that resistance, that backdraft, if you will, is totally valid. And, and worth taking good care of. So uh, we will always encourage people to take good care of themselves. But in particular, this is a great moment for you to find a little bit of mindfulness, to be sincerely yourself, and uh, give yourself a big old orgasm. Or better yet, give somebody else one.
Watch Talk Heathen live Sundays at 1 p.m. Central. Visit tiny.cc slash ytth and call into the show at 512-991-9242 or connect to the show online at tiny.cc slash callth. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.